I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I talk with Rihanna Gunn-Wright about the Green New Deal. Isn't that nice? Today's guest, Rihanna Gunn-Wright, is the policy director of the progressive think tank, New Consensus, and she's also one of the architects behind the Green New Deal. Addressing climate change is an enormous political challenge, but most of the conversations we have around addressing it, at least in a political context, you know, I think they've been a bit reductive or oversimplified, especially conversations specifically around the Green New Deal. But I think my conversation with Rihanna Gunn-Wright is a departure from that. I'd gone into this conversation with a plan to ask all of these in-depth questions about climate change and the Green New Deal, and to have this really analytical and political discussion. And we did have that conversation, but it didn't quite go as I'd planned. And and I mean that in a good way. So first off, let me say that Rihanna is one of those people who's thinking 20 steps ahead, you know, while you're still on step one. And trust me, that is the kind of thinker that you want hammering out a climate change resolution. So instead of talking about this on this really high level, we talked about things like what the Green New Deal would mean in the context of our own lives or in the context of marginalized communities, and also how our entire economic and cultural framework would shift if this problem were solved in the right way. You know, Rihanna shifted my thinking to places that I hadn't considered before in relation to climate change and social justice. I learned a lot. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Rihanna Gunn-Wright. Rihanna Gunn-Wright, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So the Green New Deal. So it was unveiled by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and I'll just call her AOC from, from here. Yeah, that's now, hard. I guess. Yeah. And Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts about, I think it was a little over a month ago. And, you know, it kind of made a, a big splash, right? Because it was anticipated for months. And then finally, this document comes out. And, you know, I I had a lot of questions and, you know, of course, if any big piece of legislation comes out, there's a lot of criticism and there's a lot Mm -hmm. of questions. But one of my first impressions was that it was really big and broad. Right. But at the same time, it seemed it seemed and I'm going to avoid using the word ambitious because I I don't like the fact that the word (laughs) ambitious. Well, it was used as as a criticism, (laughs) which I don't understand. But anyway, I, I, I felt originally that it was skeletal in a way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I was curious about, you know, how a piece of legislation like this is crafted. You know, did did AOC, did she sit down and write it herself? And then you came in. So so how did that happen? So this is really interesting because what I'm going to describe is somewhat similar to how a lot of legislation gets drafted um, and also not similar, like very different from how a lot of legislation gets drafted. Um, So, but I think what might be helpful is a little bit of conversation about how legislation generally gets created, because I think it's different than people imagine it is, but is that okay? Or will that be like a bit too reductive? Maybe people already know. I mean, I'm asking you because I don't know, because I was wondering when I saw it, I thought, you know, who, who wrote this? Yeah. So legislation, so very few to no real representatives write their own legislation. That's not to say those who do are not real, but in the sense that 
basically no one does um, because they have a lot more work to do. And so most legislation is drafted by staff. Um, Now that can be legislative staff, that can be chiefs of staff. It's really up to an office. So in, in this case, AOC staff drafted it. Now, electeds will often uh, review legislation, right, and make changes to language and whatnot. So it's they're still involved in the process, but the actual writing of the words on paper, usually they don't do. There's also usually some amount of input from outside experts or communities or external actors. Uh, and that's largely because a lot of con- congressional offices are understaffed, right? Um, But either way, most legislative staff cover more than one area of policy. I think Senate is a little bit different. They have different structure, I think a bit more money, and they tend to be more specialized. But on the House side, especially, you will have a legislative staff person. They're usually called a legislative assistant. Uh, They can cover six issue areas four to six. So they're moving a lot. And so a lot of the in-depth research that you would need to do, they don't always have time to do. So that's where think tanks come in. Academics will work. Lobbyists actually do a lot of policymaking because they're focused on just a few issues or a few buckets or a few industries. And so they have a lot of time. So often they will come with pieces of legislation drafted or they will work with a way in with offices to draft or whatnot. So usually it's actually a bit more of a collective process than people think of. And then, you know, people draft legislation and then, you know, it introduces, they introduce it and then goes through various pathways, committee, things get referred to committees, et cetera, et cetera. Now where the Green New Deal sort of splits off and why you notice that the resolution was skeletal is because the Green New Deal actually and the resolution requires that it's developed in democratic and participatory policymaking processes. The resolution was actually only, it was never designed to be a fully fleshed out policy document. It was meant to act as a marker. So to put out the goals and the projects that have to be in something for it to be considered a Green New Deal and the things that a Green New Deal has to consider. And it also talks quite a bit about how the Green New Deal has to approach problems, which is, you know, policy solutions have to help create jobs. Those jobs have to be high quality. They have to, you know, have access to collective bargaining and to a living wage. Those jobs have to, you know, invest in disinvested air, you know, those policies, the programs attached to a Green New Deal have to invest in disinvested areas, right? And in frontline communities and et cetera. How that differs is that a lot of policy doesn't stop at that marker phase. So within offices and whatever coalition they have, they'll be sort of figuring out those goals. And then with that same coalition, they will figure out whatever policies are in there, whatever policy language, and then it goes out. And there is sometimes consultation with community members and, you know, offices do often try to do that, but usually it's after policy has already been drafted. So the language has already been drafted and then they're running it by community members to say, does this work? Does this not? And getting feedback like that. And so the Green New Deal departs from that because it basically says, here are the goals, right? 
And now with those goals and this approach and these projects in mind, let's actually open up a space at the very beginning of the process and continue it throughout that keeps communities involved, frontline communities involved, activists really creates a very open space so that people, very different actors, labor, environmental justice activists, environmental activists, right? Business folks, all of the elements of society, right? Which that have to participate in this transition, which is all of them essentially can weigh in on the crafting of this plan and sort of come to consensus around policies together. That is a lot of the work at New Consensus that we do, which is figuring out how do we bring those voices in? How do we treat them as experts? Let's try to have these debates together and figure out if we can design out a solution that makes sense for first frontline communities and then everyone else, you know, who's involved. So that's why it's a little bit different. So a lot of the policy you see, you don't have that sort of holding space open moment. You go straight to policy solutions. And once you have those, you introduce it to the world and you are having a conversation about those. But the Green New Deal wanted to instead have conversations around the goals and the projects and the aims and then work together with a large collective as broad a collective as possible to figure out what are the policies within that. Right, right. And you know, that that actually clears up a lot of questions for me, because yeah. I think it does, because I think, you know, one of the early criticisms was that, you know, this is this is an unserious piece of legislation, right? And it's it's too broad, and there aren't many details. And so I think that what I saw happening in this space, and I'm not going to talk about the conservative <laughs> criticism because there's yeah. not, I don't think there's really any point in addressing that because you yeah. know, speaking of speaking of not being serious, you know, the, they don't even think this is a problem. So I'm just talking specifically on the left because that's right. where we right. need to solve this problem, right? So I think that a lot of the criticism earlier was this confusion around, you know, is this a serious document? And if so, why isn't there more detail? And you've just explained that. Because when I looked at it, I thought these are goals. This isn't a problem policy. And it wasn't intended to be policy. So No, it wasn't. And because, and I think there's a couple reasons. One is that with something that I think of, at least from a policy design uh, standpoint, and also a bit of a political standpoint, is from a policy design standpoint, when you are designing something that's this comprehensive and is going to affect this many groups, uh, you are going to have a lot of unexpected not unexpected, but what I like to call second order are knock on effects, right? Because you're in a system. So if you change one thing, other things down the line have to change too. And in this situation, you're changing a lot of things. And that can mean that like actually second order effects become less of an issue because you're sort of doing more of the constructing of the world in which the thing happens, right? Whereas like most policies, you're focused on one thing. So you change that and then you have to be thinking about other things. Or you can just have a multiplicative effect where you have way more knock-on effects than you expected. And the best way to figure out how knock-on effects are going to hurt people, especially people in frontline communities, is to talk to them. And often we talk to them too late where, because in figuring out what policy mechanisms, what policies you want to put in place, there's a lot of bargaining that already goes down. So when you come to a community after you've chosen a particular path forward and ask them to weigh in, what runs the risk of happening is that you've already made all these bargains around why you chose this path. And so if they don't like that path, that they're fundamentally opposed or it's going to hurt them, sometimes it's too late to change the path. 
right? Because you've already made peace with whatever industries you're going to affect or you've, you know, run it by the particular power actors and they prefer this solution and, you know, communities don't. So you can run into that issue. And so the best way to not have to foresee negative second order effects and design them out or design around them or put in place a policy to like buffer against them is to have folks involved from the beginning uh, and in conversation. And so that's one of the reasons. And then the other reason I think is a real political reason, which is that, like I said, there's a lot of debates about how you decarbonize well, and especially how do you decarbonize equitably. And if we were to come out right now on any side of those debates without doing proper consultation, we will break the coalition and we will break the collective before it even starts. And some opponents know that, and that's also why they push for details really early, because they know that this is a big tent approach. And because of that, like maintaining relationships is really key and also really difficult and rushing or making people feel like they aren't included or, you know, weighing in on one particular pathway before you've been able to talk to folks who, you know, are opposed to that pathway and really think about that, it's going to cause you problems. And that's been a lot of the issue with a lot of environmental legislation and, and efforts before was this sort of issues maintaining coalitions. And so we're trying to be really thoughtful and intentional about that. And the side effect is that that can make us seem, I think, sometimes less serious because we're not as prescriptive at the front. But to me, I think it's more judicious because you're actually sort of thinking long term about how do you help not only create the best policy, but actually create a coalition that can help shepherd it and pressure and, you know, and push for it and keep it um, at the top of the agenda until it gets passed. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me because you can have a big goal like, you know, get to net zero emissions, right? But there's, you mm-hmm. know, half a dozen to a dozen ways to do that. So that, that yeah. totally makes sense to me. But, you know, the thing is, is that I guess I'm, I, the reason I started with that is because I think between the original version and the version that that you've fleshed out, that there it, it's evolved so much But a lot of people, and I don't even know how much this matters, but a lot of constituents, right, or eyes, you know, who were the original one, they haven't given it a second look, right? And that was kind of my Mm -hmm. worry, you know, to to, to give it a second look, because, you know, how could we not agree on these goals? So... Yeah, no, I agree. And so that's, um, that's been a tension that I think we've seen and felt and that we've tried to navigate by returning. So various folks tried to touch once. And so we're returning to some of those relationships and some of those constituencies. But we think that that's an organizing problem because what at least I found is that even if folks looked at it once and were like, I don't get it. If you go back and do some of this work explaining and invite them into the process, they're still open, right? The door actually hasn't shut, but it's on us to get in there right before it completely shuts and yeah. invite them to the larger process. Yeah. But I mean, you you have a lot of support because, you know, I think all, you know, of the 108 Democratic candidates. <laughs> yeah. We don't have them. <laughs> I saw a tweet the other day that's like, is running for president the new year abroad for middle-aged people? 
<laughs> I know. I, was like, I, I don't know, honestly. Yeah. But honestly, I, I'm a big fan Sorry, of primaries, so I actually kind of like it. Um, I think primaries make better candidates. And the fact is, I think Democrats for a long time have tried really hard to march under this mantle of unity, which makes a lot of sense. But I think um, uh, often it hasn't been real unity. It's just been a suppression of ideas that were less hegemonic or were considered more radical. But, you know, ideas and criticisms that were still very valid and needed to to be addressed. And I'm really excited because for such a wide primary field, because I think it actually opens up that space for us to try to get to real peace, right? In the sense that it's not based on all appearing to march in the same direction, but we're actually hashing out, having conversations about these ideas and really figuring out what is the direction that most people want to go, right? Like what ideas actually have legs and legs outside of Washington, because I think there's also different calculus for what has legs on the Capitol, like in the Capitol, among folks who've been there for a really long time, because it can be a super insular place, and what has legs for the actual electorate, and what do people actually want. And so I'm really, I'm really excited, because I think, was it MLK? I forget there, he makes a distinction between, it's not real peace, but he talks about peace that's actually built upon real understanding and an engagement of difference and of a piece that's fake in which everyone is just pretending to go along in order not to get censured and how the latter is actually not useful. It's just another tool of oppression. Right, right. That's a good point. Good comparison. You know, but they, they've all signed on. They've either expressed some support yeah. or they've, you know, come out and formally endorsed it, which I think is, you know, I, I think that's remarkable. But in a sense, it's not really remarkable because, you know, Obama did something very similar with the stimulus package, which is often overlooked. And a lot of people don't know this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did something very similar. So it's not really that kind of, you know, yeah. outside of the box. Um, so during the similar... No. Yeah, it's not. I mean, so do you know about this? Uh, yeah, a little bit. But I mean, a lot of our investment in, in renewables and clean tech, that comes directly out of the stimulus package, right? Like that was our last big infusion into clean tech from a federal level, as far as I know. I'm, you know, I could be wrong. Um, and then also when you drill down to what the Green New Deal actually is, it's just in so many ways, just good old fashioned industrial policy. Yeah. Right. It's just good old fashioned. Let's invest in, in infrastructure. Let's invest in needed or nascent industries and technologies. Let's build a well-educated workforce with access to training that is flexible and mobile and not just not flexible because their jobs are precarious and they have no <laughs> benefits, right? And they're full-time freelancers, <laughs> but flexible in the sense that they have, there's an actual safety net, right? Health insurance is not tied to employment, right? You can move and have access to training programs that will help you find another job hopefully fairly quickly, that we don't have this incredibly bifurcated workforce where a ton of people are not skilled efficiently because their educations are not not up to par because we fund K through 12 education and higher ed in ways that don't make sense, right? So it's, it's very much about like things that we have done before and things that have largely worked before, 
<laughs> right? Yeah. We have these tactics have a quite actually a long history of success, um, but we just haven't done them in a really long time. And this idea of investing in a real economy versus propping up sort of financialization and growth entirely through financial markets and sort of just thinking about our economy in a less neoliberal framework is just really, it's just a departure. But we forget that just because it's a departure from recent history doesn't mean that it's a departure from all history. Yeah. <laughs> right? uh, just just the history that we remember, I think, most vividly. Yeah. And I do want to talk about that, but I want to go back to because I think this is important yes. because because it hasn't been given enough attention. Right. So Obama tried to address climate change in the stimulus package. You know, it was it was successful. Right. Um, it was the, the, yeah. the biggest clean energy bill in, in history. And I think, you know, 90 billion dollars was allotted to clean electricity and to renewable fuels and, you know, all this kind of thing. And I think the stimulus package overall was, I think, 800 billion, something like that. And so this was 90 billion of that. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, so. Yeah. So we have done something like this before. Right. Yeah. And, and so my question is, is like, you know, what happened to that? What happened to the outcome of that? And and in comparison, the Green New Deal, how does that compare to the package within the stimulus? Right. So the Green New Deal is much larger and a much more coordinated mobilization, if that makes sense. So a lot of the investment pieces could look similar to the stimulus package, but it's also wrapped up in like infrastructure improvements and an attention to public employment, right? Um, and I think a focus on equities, I think it's a bit larger than the stimulus in which the stimulus package in lots of senses, but they mirror one another in the sense of recognizing not only one, investing in in clean tech and, and clean industries and recognizing that those are going to be incredibly crucial, not only in the global economy, but just in the next iteration of the U.S. economy. Because the fact is like, beyond, you know, being incredibly detrimental to the health of our planet, possibly destroying, you know, the foundations of civilization down the line. Fossil fuels are just economically, just purely in a market sense, not really very viable anymore. The price of renewables is dropping. Batteries are getting better all the time. Coal-fired power. We're at the point where renewables are, in lots of parts of the country, cheaper than the operating costs of fossil fuel plants. So shutting down a coal plant and building entirely renewable portfolio is cheaper than keeping those coal plants running, right? So the fact is just like the markets are changing. Fossil fuels will be getting outmoded. And I think the Green New Deal recognizes that and takes it seriously in a way that the stimulus package also did. And I'll be honest, like a lot of things that we're proposing in the Green New Deal would not be possible had the stimulus package not happened, right? Because those investments in solar meant that we're far enough with solar, right? Those investments in batteries help bring down the cost curve, right? All of these things that are making a Green New Deal possible and feasible in a way that it wouldn't have been 10 years ago, the majority of that, I would probably say 80 to 90 
possibly very close to 100, but at least 80% is due to the stimulus package. And so I think repeating some of that investment, often I think maybe in a more targeted way and as part of a larger package and program for innovation and for transitioning our economy, that's a lot of what the Green New Deal is. Right. You know, actually, that's interesting. So because Al Gore mentioned something, Al Gore mentioned something recently about the cost of renewable energy and how it was, you know, plummeting so quickly that we were going to, that we were going to meet the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement, despite not being in that. Is that still true? Yeah, I could totally see that happen. Now, I think with the Paris Agreement, the thing that those agreements bring, I mean, among, I mean, they have multiple benefits, but a really key one is essentially making a commitment and then that sending a signal to industries and, you know, to the country and to, you know, reps that this is a problem that we take seriously and we are joining the global community and fighting it. So I think that that is useful and the, the price of renewables is dropping. And I mean, businesses, utilities, like state cities are committing to moving. And so I think that that's another big factor. It's the prices coming down, which enable these commitments, but also regardless of the Paris commitment, individual communities, individual actors are committing to dealing with climate change and they're committing to using these technologies. And the more that those technologies are used and deployed, the cheaper it becomes. So yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not going to argue with Al Gore about climate. So he's totally right um, on a lot of levels. But it's I think sometimes it can be a bit of a chicken and egg situation. But we definitely couldn't pursue such a quick, like a 10-year time frame had renewables not gotten as cheap as they are. Or batteries, like we're, I mean, some figures project that the EVs will be like 70% of the market in five years. Well. And that's, you know, with no government policy and we we would do well to take them seriously and to actually be proactive about planning how we want to engage with those industries, how we want to grow them, how we want to treat workers in them, how we want to think about automation in the context of of the switch to these technologies and, you know, what that means for supply chains and all of that. We want to be proactive about thinking about it instead of just letting it happen and letting the same market forces and the same actors who stand to make a lot of money and don't have a stake in doing this stuff equitably take the lead. And that's really what the Green New Deal is about. It's about saying this transition is coming. Let's take it seriously. Let's do some real thinking about how we want it to happen, how we want the outcomes to be, how we want to protect people through it, how we want to help them transition, how we want to use it to rebuild communities. Let's do that instead of letting it just happen to us. Right. So in case someone's listening and they don't know what EV stands for, it stands for electric vehicles. Electric vehicles. Yeah. Sorry. I like now, since I work on a lot of use all these terms, I'm like EJ. And people are like, what? I'm like (laughs) environmental justice. EV is an electric vehicle. JG is a jobs guarantee. M for A is Medicare for all. Keep up, people. (laughs) Keep up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So speaking of EJ... Did I got that right? So, yeah. Um, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the community and some of the other goals in the Green New Deal around, you know, you mentioned transforming the economy and addressing wage stagnation and, you know, racial wealth divide. Why do those have to be conflated in this resolution? Why do we have to keep equity at the center in communities? 
Well, no, come on. Okay. No, no oh, I'm <laughs> sorry. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it in like a, in a, oh, that sounded so shady. I'm sorry. And I think, I think my own bias is showing because it comes, that's usually actually the question I get. Why do you have to do them at the same time? And so I'm already well, yeah, prepared. I mean, I'm like, in my jujitsu mode, I'm like, let me take down that question. You're like, I'm just asking a really honest, open question about like how these things are connected. And I'm so sorry. I was like ready to fight no, you no, no. and I need to put down my arms. <laughs> We're not fighting. No, that's fine. I thought it was cute. Um, <laughs> so no, but no, seriously, like why? Um, I don't even know what my question is anymore. If you like smart podcasts about politics and foreign policy with an injection of humor, you're going to love Deep State Radio. Twice a week, this podcast will take you on a smart and direct tour of the inner workings of American power. Hosted by noted author and commentator David Rothkoff, Deep State features regular guests like Rosa Brooks of Georgetown Law School or Corey Shockey, who's the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Deep State Radio features a regular rotation of guest experts from legal, national security, and foreign policy communities who provide an insider perspective that you can't find anywhere else. So subscribe to Deep State Radio wherever you get your podcasts or visit the DSRnetwork.com for more information about becoming a member. Well, well, so, um, so is your question like why connect, like why? Uh, I mean, I guess maybe I just answer my own question. I understand why they're connected, right? Uh. But why conflate them in the same, in the same resolution? Gotcha. Right? Because you can address the wealth yeah. divide outside of, you know, a climate change resolution. Right. So I think there's a couple reasons. Uh, the first is, and I don't mean this flippantly, although it's going to come up flippantly is that you can walk and chew gum at the same time (laughs) in the sense that a lot of the solutions related to wealth inequality um, are the same type of solutions that you would pursue if you were dealing with climate change, particularly from an industrial policy perspective. And so what I mean by that is that the wealth gap has become So there's also income inequality and there's a wealth gap. So those are actually two related but separate issues. So let's put that out there. To deal with income inequality, uh, essentially the amount of inequality that we have in our society has become too much to deal with purely through redistributing money through the tax system, which is often how we try to deal with income inequality, particularly over the last three, like three decades, particularly since Reagan. And there's a really interesting paper, I forget the the name of it, but there's an economist at Stanford named Saez, and he was working with a couple of his colleagues, and they did this like national, sort of like a national income portfolio to figure out how the gains from economic growth have passed to different folks on the income level. And so one of the like findings in that that I thought was incredibly interesting, but was small, which is that since the 1980s, we have had more means-tested assistance programs, largely through the tax system. But we've gotten to a point where pre-tax and post-tax income for 
the vast majority of Americans, but particularly if you're talking about the like lower half of the income spectrum, um, are essentially the same, which means that even though we have all these programs, the income inequality before is so drastic that even when you're trying to even it out through the tax system, it's not working. And so that means that you're going to need to sort of intervene in labor markets more. And that's where you've heard people talking for years about like public employment programs, because obviously it pulls people out of unemployment. Um, you can raise, you know, wage standards, et cetera, et cetera. But the issue with public that people get really sort of touchy about with public works programs is that unless you're doing something productive or something that is going to grow the real economy or that the real economy needs, it can become redundant and actually drive inflation or, and drive sort of other negative economic impacts. And the really cool thing about if you take an industrial policy perspective to how you deal with climate change, it's necessary because when you change your energy source, you change everything, right? And so you need to be thinking about how do we, you know, plan cities better? How do we reduce emissions through buildings, right? Because our built infrastructure buildings particularly take a lot of energy and they produce a lot of emissions. I think it's like 30%. But if you're taking this industrial policy perspective, it creates a lot of work to be done, which means that all of a sudden you have all this productive work that needs to be done. And you need almost, if not full employment, almost full employment, which means you need everyone sort of working in these productive capacities. And so it creates a natural link between a public works program and a climate change program. And we think that that's really important because the fact is, like you said earlier, you can decarbonize in a lot of ways, right? So what we're saying is essentially like if there's a way where you can decarbonize and also deal with inequality and inequity. And the solutions for that are really difficult to pass, you know, outside of a crisis or whatnot. Why don't you just link them together and have a cross-cutting solution, right? Isn't that more efficient than trying to do one and then trying to do the other, especially if you actually are going to have to flip all these things in your built environment, if you are actually going to have to invest in in all of these new industries and create jobs, right? Why can't you have a solution that does both? And that's where we're coming from. And that's why we connect it. And then there's also just the bare facts of like, why inequity is connected to climate change. We know there's increasing amount of evidence that says, particularly in rich countries, the more income inequality you have, the more emissions you have. And there's like arguments about the mechanisms, like why that happens, but it's a fact that it happens, right? And so if we're trying to fix climate change and we're not dealing with inequality in income and wealth, then you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. And then the other thing is just from a purely, I think, at least from my view, it makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons, but if if you're only even thinking about it from a justice perspective, the same people who are most likely to be left out of a transition to a green economy because of skills or, you know, discrimination, right, are the same people who are most at risk of dying or being just negatively impacted by the most severe effects of climate change, by the weather effects. And these are also the same people who have been losing their lives and their bodies to fossil fuel pollution, right? 70% of African-Americans live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant 
And then we wonder why black kids are three times more likely to have asthma and are more likely to die from asthma. How, I think something like 80% or more of Latinos live in areas with air quality violations, right? These are people who are getting cancer, who are having heart attacks, who are having asthma attacks because of our reliance on fossil fuels. So to ask them to also pay the price for a transition to a green economy and possibly to an economy that, again, has goods and services that they cannot access because of where they are in the economy and the kind of work that they that is available to them. How is that fair? How is that just? And how is that at all in keeping with any of the principles that we espouse to have in America? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So what is the question that you normally get that you <laughs> that, that I reacted to? So yeah. Yeah, 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 it's the same question, I think, but it often comes from a different place at least it feels like to me um so it's less like let me hear your logic for connecting this and it starts from a place of why would you connect this won't this make it harder to pass right so there's a certain you know a certain like assumption that this was a dumb decision (laughs) or a questionable one instead of wondering what the logic is and i also think that um i mean you're you're a woman of color too if I'm correct. Yes. Yes. I'm a black woman. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw your picture, but you know, I'm not trying to make no assumptions, girl. (laughs) I want you to identify yourself and how you identify. Um, But like as a black woman, I think it's also, I often get those questions from white folks, particularly white men. And it's difficult for me, I think, because I don't think there's always a recognition of the promise of equity coming later that I have lived through in my family and like my ancestors have lived through and how often that promise has come up broken and not fulfilled. And so when you ask me like, well, can't we do equity later? Yeah, no, I didn't. To me, it sounds like, oh, how long can you all suffer some more? No, 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 Like, are we talking another, like, (laughs) 10, 20 years? Like, is that cool? And also the fact is that we know people like to talk about, like, oh, climate change legislation is very difficult to pass, which is true. But you know it's also difficult to pass? Policies related to racial equity, right? (laughs) Why are we acting like there is ever a wonderful political moment where all of a sudden, once something gets tagged as like a minority issue, that it'll be that much easier to solve? Because that's been one of the main barriers to solving it so far, right? Is that we treat equity issues not as American issues, although that's changing, I think, but we largely treat them as like issues of particular constituencies, those constituencies have less power. And it's that much harder to make those policies move. And also, we know that our political world is very polarized. And a lot of that polarization is around race. So also, once you race a policy, right, once it's not, let's have equity for all people, and it's let's have or, you know, let's have a public works program that supports these goals, but let's have public works programs because Black people are poor, 
right, is how that then gets raced and that makes it that much harder to pass. And, you know, and I'm not for just like making policies universal just so they're easier to pass. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like, let's be real about the fact that like equity policy is never easy to pass. We don't have a great history of it in this country. So the idea that you can just roll up to me and be like, oh, but we're all going to die. You know, we're all going to die. So can we just deal with some people dying sooner or later. <laughs> it's like a kind of a crazy concept yeah, yeah. to me. Um, and so I think that's why I react. Um, and I, and I think often, you know, folks just don't recognize that there is a lot of history on the other side of the equation and that I'm, I grew up in that history. I live that history. Um, I come from a family of agricultural and domestic workers down south, right? When you're talking about them not being included in Social Security for 15 years, how much wealth was that that they lost, right? Like, what would my life have looked like? Yeah, me too. Yeah, exactly. And so I think people don't recognize that when you're saying, let's deal with it later, that you're really saying, like, um, it's not just a number of years until that group gets that, you know, right that they are owed. And it's not just a certain number of years until people get their just due. These are repercussions that get felt for generations, mm. right? Like wealth compounds every year that someone is left out of a policy that helps them make more money or gain more wealth, you know, that compounds, that's money that they're losing, that they're spending elsewhere, that they can't save, right? That they can't accrue interest on, that they're, that they can't pass down to their descendants. And that's a decision that those descendants then have to make later on in their lives about how they want to live, what path they want to pursue, right? I always tell people like, if I had been a bomb sculptor, I don't think I would have been a sculptor. I had bills, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like big ups to all the people of color who go into artistic paths and don't have a, you know, a safety net. But like, for me, that didn't ever feel like an option. And so I'm living in a world where like, I want that to be an option for my kids, right? If you are the next Basquiat, like I want to be able to support you. I want you to be able to make those choices. Even like looking at the neighborhood that I'm from, there were so many kids who were just as smart as me who didn't because my mom went to college, right? And because, you know, I got some luck in life, like didn't have that. And the fact is that like we should not be essentially creating hunger games for all of these populations in order to make it. And I don't think that folks always connect a delay because for them, it's just years. For me, it's generations. Right. You know, so. Right. You're so brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thanks. Well, I think it's not always calibrated. So I try to give benefit of the doubt, but I know it hurts me in my heart when people ask me that I get it and I have to answer it, but it hurts to be, to just wonder like how many years is enough for you? Like when, when will it be a good time? Because the fact is, yes, climate change will kill us all, but it's going to kill some of us first. (laughs) So right, like it will kill some people first. And those people are going to be vulnerable population. So what you were a sculptor? No, I said if I, I wasn't, I don't have any artistic talent. So thank God. Um, 
like I don't right. have any, Sorry. so I didn't okay. have any to to invest in. I, got I mean, it. at most, like I write. But what if I had been? It would have yeah. been a great source of pain in my life, right? Like I. I mean, and I say that jokingly, but like I wanted to be a journalist and beyond the fact that like I'm terrible when people like turn down interviews, I'm like, well, I don't want to talk to you either. Fine. We're done here. Um, Which makes me not a very good journalist. It was also like a lot of the work was unpaid internships and I couldn't do that. Yeah. Or, you know, you have to spend a ton of time at the college paper. But like I had a scholarship that I had to keep a certain GPA to keep. And so I was very nervous about taking those sorts of opportunities or committing to those things because I couldn't lose that money. Or I knew that I was going to have to present a particular way if I wanted to go to grad school or have high grades, right? And I don't think people recognize the way that that shapes your world and how you move in it. Yeah. Um, and the decisions that you make. Yeah. We could talk about that forever. I have thoughts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what else do you want to talk about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, yeah. Anyway. So, but back to this. So w- w- the, the reason I asked this question and, and the reason I asked it the way it was, it wasn't from that place. Cause I would never come from that place. It was coming from, if it's wrapped in this larger, this larger resolution, will it get short shrift? Do you know what I mean? Ah, uh, yeah. And, yeah, and yeah, secondly, yeah. you know, if you, if you pull it out, like, why couldn't it be just as big? you know, or, you know, closer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And it's so funny because there's a lot of people who are like, um, they'll come to us and, and say things like, this is just a progressive wish list of policies. I'm like, would you like to see my wish list? Cause it is far longer. (laughs) Um, like we're not talking about voting rights. We're not talking about a lot of things. And that's because the policies that we chose are actually policies that are necessary to support an industrial like mass mobilization. So they're progressive policies that make sense in this context. We didn't just add a bunch of stuff in, but that also means that there's a ton of things that write that are related to equity. I mean, there's some stuff about housing in the resolution and, but housing is a huge issue, right? Like we need to still decarcerate. Like there are so many things that are not here. Um, for the reasons that they didn't fit within our framework. But the reason I'm actually not worried about them getting short shrift, and I'm glad they're included, is because I think often we think of equity as a thing that happens on the side. And so you'll have like particular offices or particular programs. But the fact is that like equity and inequity is a, is the result of systemic failures or successes, right? Equity is, is a systemic, I think, success. Inequity is generally a systemic failure. The things that ties them together is that they both come from systems. And so if you want equity, you need to be thinking about how do you seed power to folks who have generally been disinvested? How do you sow power into their communities? How do you sow investment into their communities through policy, right? So equity has to be the lens through which you design a system. And if you are not doing that, you're going to be really hard pressed to get equity at the end. And the other reason I think that it's really important, and this is going to get like a little theoretical, but essentially policy mechanisms are not apolitical, right? So they are invested in upholding, shifting, however you want particular power relationships, right? And so equity in an inequitable society like we have right now requires a rewriting of power relationships. It requires giving some more power to some groups and in some cases taking away power from other groups who have too much power or, you know, 
are largely using their power in ways that disempowers other people, et cetera. And now if you are choosing policy mechanisms that are predicated on keeping uh, existing power relationships in place, right? And what I mean by that is that one example is you design a policy that will sort of like keep fossil fuel industry at the center or give them particular Um, this is the community that you're really, or the industry that you're really sort of focused on. If that is your policy, then you're not going to get equity at the end because the reason that that policy is getting passed, the reason that it's getting support, the reason that it's moving is because it keeps those same power relationships in place. So if that is your mode, you're not going to get a different outcome, right? So if your method doesn't match your outcome, then they're going to be at odds. And so when you put equity at the center, it also shapes what tools and what mechanisms are on the table, how you will design those mechanisms, and ultimately like what you can use, what's in your toolbox to create the future that you want. And I think that's why it's really important to keep it at the center, because it changes not only how you approach the question, but what solutions you sort of keep in play. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. And I and I'm assuming that that has been the issue with some of the other proposals that's been put forth, right? Yeah. So I think it's the equity. If you read the Feinstein resolution, which has you know a lot of good things in it, none of it really talks about equity or renegotiating these power relationships, which is also really wild to me because. Deep decarbonization, like on the level that we need to do it in order to, I mean, climate change, I mean, we just figure out that the Arctic will warm regardless. But if you were to like mitigate the worst effects of climate change and really be aggressive, that deep decarbonization is going to, like I said, changing your energy source changes everything. It's going to change drastically the economy and it's going to transform the economy. And that transformation is going to touch a lot of people. And so if you aren't thinking about how to protect, if you are silent about how to protect people through that economic transition, what you're essentially saying is, I'm just going to leave it up to the market. Right. And we know what that leads to. Right. We'll we'll never come back to it. (laughs) No. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We will leave it up to the market or when problems that we should have foreseen right? Or that we saw coming down the pike, when those problems come up, then it's going to be an emergency. And we're going to have to like, you know, do all these things to try to, to deal with it. And of course, when something's done in an emergency, it's never done as well as you need it to be done, right? And so you're essentially just creating a system where either you leave all of this economic transformation up to the market, and the market is going to be responsible for like protecting people, for figuring out which workers it wants to value the most, et cetera. Or you're going to have these like new jobs that could be great come up in this ecosystem of precarious labor where, you know, we don't have to provide health health insurance and you can be a full-time freelancer and, you know, it's a gig economy or whatever, right? Like you are saying that these new jobs will emerge in this ecosystem and therefore will have to adapt to this ecosystem or whatever. Um, Or at best, you're just leaving all those questions to the side and you'll deal with them later, which is also, if you know that the issue is going to come up, why would you just decide to deal with it later? You know, so I think there's a lot of um, tensions 
Um, but I think what it also boils down to is that, like, what does it mean to be a politically feasible solution? And what it often means is that what's feasible, it's whatever upsets existing power relationships the least for the people for whom those power relationships are the most profitable. Right. Yeah. 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 And exactly. And so if that is the sort of bargain that you are driving, right, the goal for this policy is for it to be feasible and therefore not, you know, upset those relationships, then why would you think that that policy is going to create equitable outcomes at the back end? I mean, it will be transformative, but we all know that all transformation is not good, right? Or positive in the long run, even. Um, Well, you're making me think because it's often been, the narrative has often been that this is about political expedience and not about profitability. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But the fact is what makes it politically expedient? The profitability. Exactly. Am I wrong exactly. in that, though? I mean, you know. No, no, exactly. Especially when, you know, the GOP, I mean, thank God, more Republicans, I think, are starting to get hip to climate change or to recognize that the Republican, that the GOP needs a real strategy uh, and a real sort of alternative proposal or what, what have you. I mean, that's great. But at the end of the day, like, there is a whole political party that takes a ton of money from fossil fuels. I forgot like some of the senators that made the fieriest floor speeches against the GND. And like, I think like a couple weeks ago, I mean, these are folks who've taken like over a million dollars from oil and gas companies. Yeah. Right. And so you have an entire political party that is largely slow walk denied, right? resisted action on climate change in part because of who they're funded by and your solution is about being politically expedient for them well so what about your plan is going to appeal to them like right like why would it be politically expedient for them if they represent a fossil fuel industry and you are trying to bring them on board what does that mean yeah 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 that that makes total sense Yeah. I mean, I have so many questions. I could just talk to you forever because I'm thinking like, you know, if you're not being judgmental about the greed thing, you know, those same people who are getting money from these industries like the oil industry, you know, the people who are getting these big checks, you know, they could shift their focus and they could get wealthy from these new sources of energy. Right. right? Or, you know, like, say, the EV industry. And, you know, we'd be back in the same place. And I think it's this thing where it's like it's not to say no one can can profit. No one can make money. Right. A lot of like we talk about World War Two and as a model for a mass economic mobilization in the U.S. And a lot of people made money through that, uh, right? A lot of private companies made a lot of money from that. Um, and I'm not saying that that's a goal, but I'm saying that industry does have to be involved in this. The market is a part of this. And so the question is really, how do we want to shape the market? How do we want markets how can they drive the changes that we need them to make, right? And how do we want to involve private capital and where and on what terms, right? These are questions that we are dealing with in the Green New Deal and that we have to confront. I mean, a a partnership between them and investing in industry, like the goal is for some industries and like some folks, you know, to profit. But the fact is we want them to profit from behaviors that we need them to make. And we want so much of that profit to go to workers, 
right? We want a situation where all profit doesn't accrue just to capital and none of it ever makes it to labor. If somebody's going to make money, the question is how, how much, where, and how much is going to workers, right? And are we fairly compensating yeah. and are we making our society more equitable? Um, yeah, it's going to come across as me standing yeah. for greed. Like she, no, no, no. I think, but I mean, I think it's real. It's you know, I mean, greed is bad, but the fact is, like, there is money to be made, and some people will make money. Yeah, and that's not inherently a bad thing. the The question is, how much wealth are they accumulating? How much are they returning to society? How much are workers making? Because what we've seen now is largely like. If you want to put it the most harshly, theft, right? We've seen yeah, yeah. companies like bottom lines grow and wages are stagnant. Why? How? Yeah. It's not because you're not making money. So I think a lot of the Green New Deal is about using this moment of transformation because it's going to happen to proactively think about what are the set of power relationships we want in the next phase of the U.S. economy because the ones that we've built, particularly since Reagan, are not working out. So how do we want to change it? Yeah. I wanted to ask you about, because one of the things that did get some criticism is about modernizing transportation, right, which we kind of talked about yeah. already, but specifically about, you know, trains, right? Um, how do you envision that working? And is there a model somewhere in the world that we're trying to, you know, model this after? Oh, when it comes to high speed rail? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not an expert in high speed rail. I know that there are definitely functional and and successful international examples. I think for high speed rail, the and just investing in public transit more generally is that we understand that yeah, all all of the cars can be electric vehicles and that is wonderful. I mean, especially if EVs are paired to clean electricity, right? Generated um by clean and renewable sources, then that's awesome and it greatly reduces emissions, but Part of reducing emissions is also about consumption and consumption practices, which include, you know, how many miles we travel, um, et cetera. And also, how do you plan sort of denser hubs, right? There's a lot of interest in that because, you know, denser communities, more walkable communities, communities with more public transit options also will reduce emissions. And so I think high-speed rail is part of a larger just attention to public transit options with a recognition that if we are going to be asking people to change consumption practices, particularly in uh, relation to transit, we have to give them reliable, viable alternatives. Yeah, yeah. So upgrading the buildings, how do we, because I think the line is that we want to upgrade all existing buildings, Right. And, you know, what does that look like? How do we do that? So uh, so the buildings was actually one of my favorite projects because there are so many ways you could structure it. And I learn more about it all the time. So upgrading all buildings. So there's a few things to think about when it comes to upgrading all buildings. The first is that there are different types of buildings. Obviously, there's commercial, residential, and then you have like public buildings, which, you know, generally owned by some form of government. And... 
Now, the interesting thing about that is that upgrading, doing upgrading for energy efficiency for commercial buildings pays a lot more than it does for residential. But residential is easier to train people for and to like do through sort of public works programs or um, that that sort of setup. And so you deal with a couple of things like that's a clear sort of issue of equity. So there's some discussion of like how and we're doing some thinking about how would you structure the residential arm so that it is actually a source of good jobs? How do you, you know make sure wages are at appropriate levels? How do you make sure that people get benefits? How do you make sure that it's connected? to additional training, et cetera. So that is one where like we're thinking a lot about the jobs guarantee there and, and how a jobs program there could work, but there are other options. The other thing about upgrading buildings is new construction and existing construction. So new construction, that is in some ways easier to deal with because uh, new construction has to abide by codes. Now those codes are generally set Uh, at the municipal level, sometimes at the state. But if you can get really strong energy efficiency codes for new construction, you just save yourself from having to deal with a problem down the line. So you can deal with new construction that way. And then for existing construction, that's when you have a question of how do you do that? Because code doesn't apply to existing buildings. So most existing buildings, I just was in a meeting and learned that something like 80, maybe higher percent of New York buildings are, existing buildings are actually out of code because if they're not new construction, they don't have to. But there are periods in the life cycle of a building, say when you get a new owner, a lease changes, et cetera, where you can do improvements and upgrades. So a lot of what we're trying to think about when we are thinking about structuring that program is how do you do on-cycle upgrades? So that's like in periods of within buildings lives where things need to be updated, uh, especially with large commercial buildings and how much do you want to do off cycle, which is a off cycle means that you're just doing it even if the building is in that like sort of a inflection point in its life. Um, so that was a very long way of saying like, <laughs> we have a basic skeletal structure that's possible, but there are a lot of questions. And the crazy thing about the GND is like, that was one program and we have to do that 14 more times. Yeah, you know, actually, I think that, you know, although you said it's a really long answer, I think that kind of sums up the debate and the conversations around this whole thing is because people want to talk about it on a much simpler level than it than it warrants, right? It's it's so multifaceted and so complex, right? And the same goes with my final question, right? Which I'm not going to ask you, but I know you get asked a lot, which is how how are you going to pay for it? And, you know, now that I've been talking to you, and I've been reading about it, that I don't think that that's the right question. Right. No, no, no. Right. No. It, it, it's like what's possibly what's the best way to pay for it or, or what ways we can look to pay yeah. for it. Right. And the question is actually which ways and also pay for it. Do you mean real resources or do you mean money? Right. Because real resources, like the reason you have things like a job guarantee or Medicare for all is because real resources in terms, which means like people and physical capital, but particularly we think about people, right? Like getting the resources to pay in terms of workers and people will be far more complex than people think it will be. Because for the level of work that will be going on, right, I think Rocky Mountain Institute, uh, 
has data where they estimate that if you were to decarbonize on the like the level of a green new deal you would be growing the economy two and a half times right you'd be over doubling the size of our current economy that's a lot of work and you're going to slow yourself down you're going to cause problems if you don't have enough people and so a lot of the thinking about social safety net is how do you get the people like the physical people that you need to be working, how do you scale them up? How do you get them where they need to be? How do you make sure that jobs are not just going to populations that are ready to do them, which is very useful in some ways, but is also generally leaves out the same types of people who most need those jobs and who could most benefit. And also like, how are you creating ownership opportunities too? And so all of that is part of how you figure out how to pay for something like this. Now, what we actually talk about when people say, how do you pay for it is how do you finance it? How do you get the money? And that is actually, to me, a much easier easier question. There's a ton of private capital. Uh, obviously, the government has multiple ways of creating revenue, et cetera. Uh, and that's not to say that it's easy, but there are tools in our toolkit, right? And so actually, I think how do you finance it is one of the easier parts of this. Um, the policy design and the system design is really the, the toughest part. Right, but even financing it, there, there isn't just one single. I feel like when people ask that no. question, they're, they're thinking of it as like, which credit card are we going to put it on? Right. Or like, which bank yeah. account are we going to take it out of? And even that isn't a simple one answer. No. answer. Yeah. And there's like, there's so many ways and so many mechanisms. I mean, people love to talk about taxes. There's also bonds and like, how do you want to engage the bond market? Right. Like there are so many ways that you can crack this nut. Um, and a lot of them you will, it's not even like you said, choosing one, it's really, how do you assemble a package that makes sense? Well, Rihanna, thank you so, so much for talking to me. I've got a lot to, I have a lot to think about. Oh, I, yeah, I'm sorry. And also like, I tend to like answer in very long ways and, um, yeah, so yeah, it's not your fault. <laughs> I just, I'm trying to modulate it, but I just get so excited to talk to people about it. And I think it's so important. And I think it's so important to be having these conversations in a way that lets people ask questions and engage. And so I get very carried away too, because I'm also in the, in the midst of thinking about all of these things because they're open questions, so many of them. And so, um, it's, a, I think, a little bit less like someone who's like, this is a problem that's settled. And they're like, here's my three sentence answer. I'm like, actually, you asked me about something that I think about all the time. And let me talk to you about it. And maybe I'll figure it out, too. <laughs> no, I think that. No, I think that's good. No, I think that's really good. And the thing is, I just wish. Yeah, I think I would just wish more people were like that. Right. Um, yeah, no, because, we, we, you know, instead of having this kind of like flat, overly simplistic conversation about this, it would be nuanced and it had the depth that this problem requires. We just don't don't have it. So I'm, I'm, I guess I'm very glad that you are behind this. Oh, thank you. Right? Yeah. So I just want to thank you for taking this on and for doing the hard work. You know, I really appreciate you. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help spread the word about the electorate, please leave us a five-star review and ask your friends to subscribe. Please also support the electorate by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And that's at electorate. And if you'd like to further support the electorate, please visit us at patreon.com electorate. 
Thank you again for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight.